Thanks for tuning back into the Catch My Drift podcast. This is your host, Matt Kelmis. And today joining me on the phone from Florida is Marcus Lashley. Marcus is a wildlife ecologist and professor at University of Florida and the host of Wild Turkey Science Podcast. Marcus, how are you doing this fine spring day? Oh, I'm doing just fine. How are you? Doing well, thanks. We uh, Up here in Minnesota, we, we've got a nice sunny 70-degree day. We're getting a little bit of taste of spring, so I'm excited Excited yeah, to hit nice. the woods. Our, our Minnesota opener opens up on Wednesday, which will be when this podcast uh, airs, so I'm excited to, uh, excited to have this time with you and uh, talk a little bit about turkey hunting. Hopefully everybody's on their way out to the woods, having a nice safe hunt this morning and, and a successful one at that. So good luck to all the Minnesota turkey hunters. I understand your season down in Florida um, has been open for a little while now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been been open. Uh, the, the first opening turkey season is in South Florida, and that's been uh, for quite a while now, and that's uh, coming to an end now. But uh, the northern season... I was lucky enough to go out on opening day, which was the 18th of last month, okay. and uh, and got on a big tom. Nice. So uh, was able to fill one of my my uh, tags, and you get two here in in Florida. So uh, I I tried a, another time, and I actually uh, I had two birds come in, and they when they walked through my opening to to take a shot they i would have killed both with one shot so i uh, only had one tag <laughs> <laughs> so uh, those those were the the two times that i've gotten out so far i, I do have some plans to to travel around the south okay. uh to to do some more hunting but uh yeah so so far it's been really successful and i've uh, been enjoying myself outdoors the couple of times i've gotten to go awesome that, yeah that sounds really successful if you've gotten you know, I guess opportunity at three different birds. That's pretty sweet. Um, is, mm-hmm. are, are those Osceolas that you're hunting down there? So the, the, uh, second time where I was unsuccessful, those are considered in the range of Easterns. Okay. Those over in the panhandle of Florida. The other one that, I that I harvested is according to the maps within the Osceola range, but the characteristics of the one I harvested uh, shared the eastern traits more okay gotcha. so uh <clears throat> you know uh, to me it, it's an adult time with a full fan that was goblin and <laughs> and i'm tickled to have it I, I don't really worry about which subspecies it is to be honest with you sure sure yeah i know there's a few a few different organizations well i guess one in particular the the nwtf they recognize uh if you shoot the four different subspecies you get a you know the grand slam um, that's something mm-hmm. that a lot of guys are inter- guys and gals are interested in. Um, but yeah, that's it, it'd be cool to hunt down there in Florida, whether it be for Easterns or Osceolas, you know, coming from up here in Minnesota. Sure. <laughs> I've hunted uh, yeah. once down in Nebraska and uh, my at my in-laws farm in, in Wisconsin. But other than that, my I'm pretty limited to my, my state uh, hunting. But mm-hmm. yeah, it'd be cer- certainly fun yeah, to my- get down there. 
most of my hunting has been in the southeast. And I will say if you get down in central or southern Florida, the experience there is even remarkably different than in the northern part of the state. Uh, but, you know, each place has its own, uh, you know, charm to it, we'll just say. Mm-hmm. I've enjoyed hunting in, in several different landscape contexts across the south, and, and each one has their own unique challenges, and, you know, it's a lot of fun to do that. Yep, yep. Yeah, I've seen some pretty cool videos of some, you know, turkeys that are taken in the swamp and strutting around on those little mm-hmm. islands in ankle-deep water. It'd be, yeah, fighting the mosquitoes, I'm sure, <laughs> the whole time. Oh, yeah. The mosquitoes, uh, just a few days ago when I was out, the mosquitoes were just absolutely miserable. Yep. Well, it, you know, and I had the toms in close to me for about 45 minutes and couldn't move. Oh. So I'm just, I was just getting eaten alive. I didn't have my thermosil on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good thing that we, we use face masks at sometimes. Uh, you at least keep you off your mm-hmm. face a little bit, but, oh, man, that sounds miserable. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It, it was, uh, you know, when they're when they're inside of you, you know the drill. You know, I couldn't move at all. Yep. And uh, the, the mosquitoes found a few weaknesses in my armor, <laughs> we'll just say. <laughs> cool. So the the habitat, I guess, that in Florida, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about, you know, different areas that we've hunted. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, of course, with Florida being your home state, I guess the turf, you know, up here in Minnesota is, a, and of course, is a little bit different than, than Florida as, as mm-hmm. it is, you know, different than Kansas, Nebraska, even out west in the mountains, you know, the Rockies where turkeys live out there too. It's different all, all over the place. So I guess my first question, sure. you know, it might be a little bit hard to answer, but as a, as a scientist of, uh, that studies turkeys, what does an ideal turkey habitat look like? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. <clears throat> well, to to paint with a broad brush real fast, um, the, the habitat requirements of turkeys are quite similar depending on where you're at. It's just what is limiting can change fairly dramatically. So in, in some parts of their range, roosting locations might be limiting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the south, that's... There, there are trees everywhere. You know, we don't have that limitation. Uh, so the main thing that you need to be thinking about from a turkey habitat standpoint is what are the requirements they have, have it for, for each of their life stages and different times of the year, and then how are those arranged in the landscape and what is limiting? So, you know, that's a good frame of mind to stay in. And just to go through those, I, I mean, your your listeners are probably a turkey hunting enthusiast. You probably already know a lot about turkeys, mm-hmm. and you can use that to kind of understand those those limitations. So, you know, of course, they they need places to roost. If you're if you don't have a place to roost, you're not going to have turkeys. So that's obviously a limitation, and in some parts of their range, it can be one that's hard to to manage for. Uh, some of the things that are really important to productivity that might be a little less un- well understood or what does nesting cover look like? And if you think about the, the biology of turkeys, pretty much aside from roosting, what really matters to a turkey is vegetation structure below a shoulder height. And for nesting cover, 
what we're more typically thinking about in that context is uh, a mixture of herbaceous plant communities and uh, with some hardwood encroachment. Uh, so that's pretty typical. Now, that doesn't mean that they always choose that. And in some cases, they do really well when they don't have that woody component. But typically, across most much of their range, that's what we're thinking of when we say nesting cover. Okay. So envision what that might look like. It may be some combination of, of native grasses and forbs. So broadleaf herbaceous plants mixed in with some shrubs uh, or young trees that are that are colonizing, and you know it may be uh, in your part of the world quite a few years since the last disturbance. Uh, in my part of the world, we need disturbance every two to three years, or it will quickly advance past what we would consider high quality uh, nesting cover. <clears throat> if you think about the the poult rearing stage, which is a, a major concern in uh, some parts of the range, the south, and in some parts of the Midwest, uh, where we're really worried about poult rearing, and we have the least data uh, during the poult stage on turkeys to understand, you know, what what their needs are. But we do know enough to understand that somewhere between hatching and the winter flock, we have a a lot of mortality in many parts of the range, uh, particularly of jennies. Okay. So if we're talking about poult rearing cover uh, and when it's important, you know, a lot of people are like, okay, well, we've got uh, three, three or four months of growing through that poult rearing stage. Well, really, the bottleneck on poult recruitment uh, or, or the highest mortality rate occurs in about the two, first two weeks of life or so. And they have very specific, deliberate requirements at that at that stage. And in some parts of the range, uh, is certainly the most limiting thing is across the south. I'm not sure. I think you probably are doing better there. Uh, that that is a herbaceous dominated community. It does not have that woody component in it yet. It's a little earlier in succession, and typically it will be dominated by forbs if it's ideal. So the broadleaf herbaceous plants. Uh, that doesn't mean there won't be some grass or, or that you can't gain benefit from some of the grass, but uh, when you get to a, a grass field, uh, they, that quickly can become too thick for them to navigate. So we're talking about a, an animal that's a couple inches tall, and you know what's available at the ground level is critical for it to be able to navigate, to thermoregulate, uh, to avoid predation, you know, all of those things are, are simultaneously challenging them at that stage. And what you need is a relatively open, bare ground uh, structure at the ground level with that vegetation that often will be, you know, knee height to waist height above, uh, you know, above these poles. So if you think about that hen being able to see over that cover, whereas her Poults could meander and uh, travel really easily underneath it. Okay, so something <clears> that's that's like a, like a big blue stem um, uh, native grass would be kind of too high for that. Well, uh, it could be if it was completely dominated by that, or okay. yeah, a big blue stem or switchgrass or 
you know, some of the native orange season grasses that you may be familiar with there. Uh, we have some of the same ones here, and uh, some don't overlap. But those clump-forming grasses are, are not problematic unless they become too dense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as long as the hen can navigate through and she has a re- reasonably high visibility above the vegetation, uh, we typically will see them continue to use that. Okay. So it's not that all of the vegetation is not above her head, but she, she needs to have some visibility. That makes sense. So this past weekend, uh, my uncle and our buddy and um, his, or my uncle and his son, so I guess it'd be my cousin by mar- by his marriage, uh, and uh, and our buddy, we did some burning out on the farm, our farm that that I hunt on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always like to do it. It's always such a fun time. Um, you know, you got to put a plan together and play the wind, and sure. uh, I mean, it's and you always find a couple antlers, so that's always fun too. But um, it, mm-hmm. it can it can get away from you if you're not you know you don't have your plan perfectly in place. So that being said, I, sure. I you know what you know we did some burning. Um, we've over the last couple of years we've put together some um, like brush piles, um, but we used old pallets uh, that we stacked on the brush on top of just to create um, some habitat for rabbits to use too. Um, so mm-hmm. we're trying to you know make it easier on the turkeys just by doing little things, but what are some other things that you might recommend we do out on our farm that would better the habitat for turkeys? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> there there are a few tools at, at your disposal, and, and uh, some people have varying degrees of access to these different tools, but uh, a tractor with an implement that you can disturb soil uh, and or use... Uh, herbicides and then prescribed fire are, are three tools that are really important. You're really trying to manage uh, early succession and the structure and, and composition of that succession. Okay. So in, in my part of the world, you know, we it, it's uh, I, I live in the fire capital of the world. We'll just <laughs> put it that way. We leave, we like more prescribed fire per capita in Florida than anywhere else on wow. the planet. And the, that, I mean, studying turkeys and how they're influenced by prescribed fire, I, I've kind of come to the, the conclusion, and I think a lot of uh, other scientists are with me here, that fi- prescribed fire is one of the most useful and broadly positive to turkeys of all the management tools that we have. Okay. In a wide variety of contexts, uh, whether it's in a a woodland context where you have a broken canopy of woods that you know you have sunlight penetration, or you're managing fields, uh, that the prescribed fire promotes structure and composition of vegetation that's generally desirable, regardless of the context that you're in. For the most part, uh, that that can vary in some parts of the the range of turkeys, but in general, fire is good. And, uh, you know, using implements with uh, in, in fields that disturb soil, uh, you might typically see some of the, the agricultural practices on the field margins often produce, uh, you know, desirable brooding cover in particular. Uh, that, that disturbance 
is really important to promote annual forbs. Okay. So, um, and, and you know, you'll you typically can use those two tools uh, in ways that you can adjust what the plant community composition is if needed. So, another important tool that um, that can be very important depending on uh, which and to what degree you're dealing with invasive species, plant species, uh, herbicide can can be really important in many contexts. Here we have a, a plant called Kogon grass. Uh, we also have Bermuda and Bahia. You know, we have a, a suite of grasses that that can dominate landscapes. They're thatch forming mat forming grasses and they are often a dominant plant of our early successional plant communities and they essentially render it useless to turkeys. Okay. It's a good place for a turkey to go die. Uh, so in those cases with some of those plants we don't have another option other than herbicide where you have to, to address that problem and then you can start to use other tools that are at your disposal to uh, to manage, you know, desirable uh, plant community structure. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, if you're in a forested scenario, uh, it's pretty common for sunlight to be a limiting factor in that that uh, situation. And opening up the canopy to allow some sunlight penetration can be extremely beneficial. And practices, uh, you know, civil cultural uh, practices that incorporate variable retention of, of timber can be really important. And basically what I mean when I say variable retention, just think about sunlight. You have varying degrees within your stands of sunlight penetration to the forest floor. Okay. Gotcha. One nice thing uh, where you're at is succession is quite a bit slower there, you know, than it is here. It, you know, if you open the sun, if you open up the canopy to sunlight here, we need disturbance every couple of years or it's going to really quickly get into something not usable for turkeys. You know, four or five years and and we're already out of that, that zone, you know, of vegetation uh, structure that we're looking for. You know, we already have plants getting into the mid-story. <clears throat> so you have a, a little longer uh, that you're getting out of those kinds of practices. But having very varying degrees of sunlight penetration can be quite influential on turkeys and you're providing them a lot of the things that they need throughout their life cycle in close proximity to one another and that's that's a real value you can gain from that type of of uh, forest management okay gotcha you mentioned one thing uh that i, I kind of kind of sparked an idea in my head there uh an area mm -hmm. that turkeys go to die um and i'm just thinking you know there's on our farm that we hunt, it's, I don't feel like we see that many turkeys other than during the breeding season or during the hunting season. Mm -hmm. Are turkeys using different areas of the landscape throughout different times of the year? Sure. Okay. Yeah, they <clears throat> actually, they, there's some really interesting writings. I, I've shared some of it on Instagram in the past. I was doing a segment called Wild Turkey History that hashtag if people want to look at that. Okay. Uh, but I was going through historical writings, and they were talking about, I, I just was going through trying to find every reference I could to wild turkey. 
and you know we're talking about like back 1500 up through the 1800s where you know all these quotes i was finding from these different writings is really interesting but the reason i bring that up is is uh i think it was bartram and then uh i can't remember the other oh james audubon uh both of them were talking about turkeys and how they moved across the landscape seasonally and it was really remarkable uh and we we see the same kind of thing here where i'm really familiar with turkey behavior we will see turkeys using hardwood bottomland throughout uh the late summer into the fall uh on into the winter and then you often see them transition uh when you get closer to nesting uh during the spring you'll see them tra- transition to uplands and these areas that are that are open canopy and frequent fire occurrence and you see them kind of switch to that that kind of context okay so if, if those two you know if, the, if you're if places where they are overwintering and you know uh concentrating on mast and you know those they don't have that that really a strong need for that developed understory structure like they do during nesting and brooding, uh, you could certainly see them shift their, you know, pretty substantially their use of landscapes. Okay. And maybe that's, maybe that's why we're seeing them so much is because we, you know, on, I'm just trying to think of this property that I hunt on. It's, mm -hmm. you know, 300 acres, about half of it is, is wooded. Um, it's a lot of valleys, Mm -hmm. you know, we've got a valley that runs north and south and two that run east and west. But other than that, it's all, you know, the other half of it is all, uh, CRP, uh, grand, uh, ground. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't know if I were to guess maybe 40 acres of, of tillable, uh, agriculture land that we rent out. So Mm -hmm. a lot of it, it's that CRP land that, you know, it, it sounds like would be better suited for that Turkey in the end of the spring and that poult rearing sure. kind of time. So maybe that's, and now that you're, now that you're talking me through it, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe that's, uh, maybe that's why we're seeing more turkeys as opposed to different times of the yeah. year. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if you're seeing a, a shift in, in space use to, to be closer with nesting and brooding cover, which it sounds like, uh, with the, you know, the CRP fields and, and, uh, the ag fields, you, you probably in that landscape have, uh, you know, desirable nesting and brooding cover, right? Yep. Right in close proximity. Okay, cool. <clears throat> well, it was interesting to hear you talk but, about. Uh, Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, another thing, one thing that's really important to a lot of us uh, are, are having places that are desirable to strut. Sure. And you're basically looking for open vegetation structure, you know, to uh, obviously turkeys have a really interesting social behavior and really elaborate characteristics that are designed to show off. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and they have exceptional vision. So they're really tied to places that are, that are open uh, so that they can, you know, uh, partake in the, in the uh, displays. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised even before hens are going to nesting, if you're starting to see turkeys show up out of the woodwork, literally, uh, you know, they're, they're literally, uh, seeking out those more open areas here uh, one of my favorite contexts to hunt in is a recent prescribed fire because we've just removed a lot of the vegetation it's an exceptional place for strutting 
and you'll see a lot of that playing out in these really open woodlands that have just been burned. And then our growing season is so fast that by the time you get around to to uh, late nesting, when we're starting to get a few broods on the ground, the vegetation has already responded fast enough that it starts to become pretty decent brooding cover, even within the same year. Okay. So timing. <clears throat> so so timing I, I really your, love those. Timing your prescription burn is pretty pretty important too. Oh yeah, it could be depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, it, it can be uh, quite influential. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you know, here we have uh, a much wider window, I suspect, than you do, uh, where we can burn in January, we can burn in May, we could burn in August. You know, we we pretty much have uh, a much well, we'll just say relatively wide open. Uh, burn window, and we can target different times of the year to achieve different objectives. Okay. And particularly if we, if you're burning early in the year, like a February time frame, that will be exceptional and very attractive during turkey season. And then the vegetation develops into a structure that's desirable for brooding. It's not till about a year later, at least, depending on where you're at, if it's productive soils. The next year, they may be even nesting in that uh, that recent burned area. So you can see how fast things are happening here. It would be far slower uh, for you. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but up, but up until yeah, a if week, we if we move that around, yeah, go ahead. Up until a weekend ago, we still had snow on the ground, you know, in some of the on um, some of the pales. Right. <laughs> so we finally, it's all burned or you know burned off and melted. So we had to had to take advantage of it, you know, before. Sure. Before it gets too late in the year. Yeah. Well, we if we shift around, I have uh, several research projects looking at the timing of fire and how it influences vegetation. And, of course, I'm keenly interested in that from the perspective of turkeys. Uh, if we move, around, move the fire around to the late growing season, so we're talking about like a, like a September, October time frame, we can start to fairly dramatically shift the composition of the plant community. So basically hardwoods uh, do not recover from those and we have a lot of encroaching hardwoods that are undesirable. So we're trying to control those. We also have quite a few desirable forb species that respond really positively to fire timed at that time. So, you know, you could, my point is you can change the timing to achieve different objectives. Mm -hmm. It's not just uh, to you know, uh, attract turkeys during turkey season, although I like to do that, uh, we could also shift around to other times to achieve different vegetation responses. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Very cool. It was, um, I was saying a little bit earlier, it was interesting to hear you talk about the documentation of the history of wild turkey that you had come across back in Mm -hmm. even the 1500s. Um, what, I guess I want you to touch on too a little bit, and maybe you maybe you stumbled across this in that research. What was the population of turkeys like back uh, mm-hmm. back in that in the early days, like that back in the fifteen, sixteen, seventeen hundreds? Well, so I, I made I would say probably twenty to twenty five posts on this, and uh, I need to go back to it because I still have quite a few quotes that I haven't posted. But there were a few of them that. They just resonate, and one of them was was from Bartram, and he was lamenting 
uh, while he was he was drawing, you know, basically mapping out the entire eastern U.S., uh, especially the southeastern U.S. And he was when he was doing that, he was basically calling everything a grand savanna. Okay. So it's this wide open forest type. The only way it could have persisted like that is with really frequent fire. So you just imagine the savanna type structure uh, ubiquitously across this landscape that's now mostly forested. And while he was doing that, he had a few quotes, and one I, I put on there, just, I, I, I need this to be a part of my life kind of quote, you know. Uh, he, he was lamenting because he couldn't sleep in the mornings while they were traveling through the spring because he said literally there were chain gobbles <laughs> of gobbling for miles in every direction as far as the ear could hear everywhere they are. Wow. And it was, you know, he was just describing, and, and he had a really poetic way of writing, he's just describing this landscape that there's just unbelievable abundance of wild turkeys. So if you fast forward that up till the turn of the night, uh, let's see, yeah, I guess about 1900. So right at the, the uh, you know, the early 1900s, we had... <clears throat> decimated turkey populations across much of the range. And that was because of a, a suite of things, but uh, in particular market hunting, uh, where people were killing just uh, huge amounts of turkey to sell the game meat, but also uh, to use feathers for, for uh, various reasons. Uh, we also had intense pressure on them because turkeys were viewed as a pest in agricultural uh, scenarios. So lots of different things like that. And we had gone to the brink of extinction and, and excluded them from many parts of the range. And, you know, that we went on for a few decades and then we started really aggressively in the 70s in particular uh, with, with restocking efforts, which it sounds like you guys have have uh, reaped some of the benefits from there. Absolutely. But uh, we've restocked turkeys across a lot of that range now. Okay. And so uh, that's a really interesting history, and that a lot of people, it's, it's a really, really interesting to go and read about. But we we almost lost a lot of our, our uh, popular game species, and uh, some key legislation along with uh, some other key changes in the way way we do business in the United States, we were able to to uh, establish sustainable game populations. So uh, really interesting reading. I, I feel like we could go on and on about all of that, but I don't want to bore your audience uh, <laughs> with a bunch of, of history. But, uh, you know, the, particularly like the Lacey Act right around 1900 uh, that banned the, the – uh, some of the market hunting stuff that was decimating populations and then establishment of bag limits and, you know, uh, pillars of conservation like hunter license sales. We have a Pittman Robertson act and a portion of that gets rerouted back into the conservation of, of those species and habitat for those species. So a lot of key legislation like that helped us restore wild turkeys along with several other game species. Okay. Yeah, that's it's uh it's neat that you you talk about that cuz turkeys for a long time weren't weren't around in Minnesota either. 
like you said, we, mm-hmm. we reintroduced them here um, back in, uh, in, in the 70s, early 70s. Uh, a few turkeys were traded from Missouri, um, and we traded them some, mm-hmm. some uh, grouse. The DNR swapped a little, yeah. did a little trade, and thank thank goodness <laughs> it's they really did. A really good trade. It is, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, back uh, in the early seventies, they, yeah, they reintroduced about thirty wild turkeys in um, near Houston County or in Caledonia, near Caledonia, Minnesota. That's if you ever been to Caledonia, mm-hmm. you drive through the in on the highway, and there's a big sign, and it says you know they're the capital of Minnesota, wild turkey capital of Minnesota. So it's pretty neat, but. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, and and didn't take long to have a, a huntable population of those turkeys, so it's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that story has been pretty common across many of the restocking efforts in different areas. Uh, typically, when you restock a species, especially like turkeys that have a really high reproductive capacity, <clears throat> you you restock the species, and if it's successful, you'll see essentially exponential population growth for uh, various amounts of time, but with turkeys, it seems to be a few decades. And then you should see like a typical carrying capacity curve. If if folks don't know what that looks like, you could just look up carrying capacity curve. Uh, But basically you would expect that population growth to be pretty tremendous. And then they get somewhere near a carrying capacity and we should expect it to kind of stabilize around that. <clears throat> and uh, we've we've seen that pattern in many states where I've actually looked at the data since restocking. We've seen that kind of pattern play out. Okay. And it's typical. Seems seems to be about a three decade process or so. Okay. So I guess with your studies, you said some some of the different studies, state studies that you've done. What states do those include? Well, I, I've uh, looked at the data pretty extensively uh, in terms of like hunter harvest, uh, let's see, uh, uh, brood surveys, so poult per hen data, uh, several kinds of data like that across most of the southeastern states. Okay. I've looked at those pretty extensively. Another thing, uh, uh, the Wild Turkey Science podcast uh because of one of our missions in that I'm starting to branch out and and uh, bring in experts from all over the country. And so we're, we have people, you know, that are leading the, tur- the ongoing turkey research in various states. Uh, we have intention to, to uh, target some folks up near you as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, uh, the, the idea was for us to be a hub to give people as near to real-time updates on the ongoing turkey work near them, uh, wherever you're at in the United States. So, uh, yeah. So I haven't uh, talked to anybody from Minnesota yet, but hopefully that's coming pretty soon. Sure. Well, that'll be cool. I'll have to keep my ear out for that. Are there, Yeah. I guess as far as, uh, you know, the, the research in different states that you've done across the southeast, are there certain mm-hmm. states that are doing better than others? I mean, you always hear how, you know, just from listening to different podcasts, you hear how certain states mm-hmm. are in trouble. And is there any yeah. is there any is there any light shed on why that might be? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, there <clears throat> there is variation across states, and 
the the question really is why. So if you look at the data in Florida, and I'm talking about trends at hunter harvest, this corrected for hunter effort, and poult per hen data, which is the measure of productivity, uh, we do not have indicators that there's a, a big problem in the state of Florida. Okay. Um, if you go to some of the other states, like Georgia or Arkansas, uh, Missouri, uh, some parts of Tennessee, Kentucky, some of these states do have indicators at a larger scale, you know, from that state agency data that that the hunter harvest is declining and or the productivity showing symptoms of a problem that essentially means uh, there's a, a fairly low poult per hen ratio. Essentially what that is is during the summer we're, we're counting you know, through some sort of standardized way, counting how many hens or, or how many poults we see per hen. And a, a lot of times it'll literally be from citizens. So, you you know, we'll, uh, in Florida, they send out a, a basically a report card where anybody driving down the road, if you see a, a hen with some poults, you can, you can report it to the state. So that's literally what's happening. Uh, some states they are doing it with their agency personnel primarily so that may be coming from wildlife management areas or something like that or it may just be surveys when they're out and about so it can come from different ways but we have really good data and sometimes it's really long term depending on the state where we have a really good idea uh, of the productivity of the populations over a long time period and in some states that productivity has declined uh, compared to to recent decades. So one thing uh, that's pretty, there's also a pretty typical gradient, which can tell us a little bit about the challenges of wild turkeys. If you look up in, in more northern states, those poult per hen ratios tend to be much higher than in the south. So there's a couple of things that you can glean from that one. It seems to be much uh, much more limiting on populations in the south that during that nesting and poult rearing stage. But what that tells us in the north is that uh, we have a different stress period or bottleneck, which is probably associated with the more intense winter. So, uh, you know, there's some interesting things that can be gleaned from that data, but there is some variation across those, you know, across several states. And uh, we've seen some state agencies take actions uh, like moving seasons or changing bag limits in response to that. But what the underlying cause of it is still up for debate. So uh, the reality of it is it's probably several things that are going on. But if you look at multiple of the studies across the South, we are reporting when we measure it that about uh, somewhere between three to seven percent of the landscape is suitable for brooding cover. Wow! So that's a severe limitation on productivity. So that could be one problem: is we have these broad-scale shifts in land use that are not conducive for for turkey production. Uh, another uh, hypothesis is related to hunting pressure and that we're shooting too many males or at the wrong time, 
and uh, you know we've discussed that. We actually have a series going through all of these different things and where the data is coming from, and talked to several experts about it. Uh, <clears throat> so you know that's an, another concern, and uh, there are experiments ongoing that are experimentally moving the season dates to see how changing the timing of harvest or changing the number of individuals harvested affects population uh, populations of turkeys. Uh, there's also some scientists that have been very interested in, uh, in other factors that might be operating at the broad scale, uh, such as the, the timing of weather events, and uh, there's some evidence that we've had a shift during the the uh, the nesting and brooding time frame, where we have more more frequent high rainfall events, which which could be of concern. Uh, you know, those are we have lots of hypotheses like that, and we have people across many of these studies, you know, scientists that are trying to to figure out what is the underlying cause. Uh, one that's really popular is also that we've shifted the predator context. Okay. So uh, they're, they're especially from the uh, the hunting public. There's strong concern that we have a far higher abundance of nest predators and adult predators on the landscape. And there is some data, at least from the south, that uh, that we have had increases in uh, raptor populations over the last several decades. Uh, but <clears throat> regardless of, of uh, you know, these causes, one thing that, that we know is pretty important, and it's because it's inextricably linked to any of these other causes, is habitat. And I know that people get sick of hearing that, but it, it really is true. Uh, if you're, you know, if we're in a landscape where we have virtually no brooding cover, which it seems pretty uh, be, to be a common case around the south, um, it, it doesn't matter if there's a high abundance of predators or what the weather's like. You know, the turkeys are not going to fare well because of the lack of habitat, and that's obvious to people. But what's, what's not as obvious is when we have high-quality brooding cover, then they're also uh, able to reduce the risk of predation because they have good cover to hide from predators. Right. Yep. So if you think about it that way, it becomes a little like now the light bulb's coming on. Right. Okay, I can see where that might be a cumulative effect. And then you look at exposure, which is apparently a a big cause of mortality when when you're two inches tall. Uh, if you provide really high quality brooding cover, then also you're not as at risk to exposure, whether it be rainfall or or uh, just temperatures. It might be too cold where you're at or too hot where I'm at. Uh, so the, the habitat at each of those stages has this cumulative effect on productivity of the population because you're providing them not just the high-quality brood area where they can catch a lot of bugs and grow fast, but they can also avoid predation and exposure, and it mitigates a lot of these other problems and then when you carry more uh, turkeys into the falling breeding season, then harvest pressure isn't as big of a problem, right? You see how this starts to become this cumulative effect. So 
you know, regardless of, of the mechanisms that we're observing now in, in some of these pop, these uh, different populations, improving productivity from the habitat standpoint is, is uh, a way to buffer those other issues. So it's a safe bet that increasing productivity is going to help us deal with whatever these other problems, and it, and it may just uh, completely erase the, those problems. To, you know, in some cases. So uh, I, I think that's a good way to think about the role of habitat and how critical that is. And I know I've, I've focused a lot on poultry and cover, but the same applies to nesting. It just happens that uh, poultry rearing seems to be much more limiting across some of the range that I'm more familiar with. Yeah, it, it definitely makes sense. And, you know, even talking with my previous guest, uh, his name was Thurman Tucker, the Minnesota State Coordinator mm-hmm. uh, Quail Forever. He had it was almost the exact same thing to say uh, was habitat. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, he he uh, he gave the example of of an ice cube. If you take an ice cube and set it out in the middle of your living room, well, it's going to melt because it doesn't have the the appropriate environment. It doesn't have the you know mm-hmm. the temperature it needs. Or you know, ice cubes obviously don't eat, but um, you kind of see what I'm saying, where you take that ice cube and right. you put it in an, in an environment that's frozen, obviously it's going to thrive. So you can take mm-hmm. all the turkeys you want and take all the pheasants you want or quail you want and release them, uh, but it's not going to do any good if they don't have that, the habitat to support that population, and it totally makes sense. Right. Well, and, and you know, when we're thinking about a, a young turkey and trying to, to get it to survive, if you don't have adequate brooding cover for them to not die from the next rainfall event, it really does not matter how many predators are around. Like they're, they're irrelevant in that context because you have another more uh, limiting problem, which in that case would be exposure, right? So the, the interesting thing is that these different life stages, if you provide them the, the right type of cover and they have that option, then they can be remarkably resilient to some of these other factors. And that's really what this is about, is trying to provide them options, good options, to nest and brood in, in particular. Okay, cool. Yeah, it uh, really hits home. I mean, it makes sense. It, you hear you hear more, yeah. <laughs> more than one person say it. it uh, <laughs> like I said, just our, our our previous episode here was that that gentleman from Quail Forever, and he said yeah. exactly the same thing. There's you know not enough habitat, and he he attributed mm-hmm. a lot of the population decline to chemical use too. Do you see that posing a threat to turkeys? Any um, I guess I, he was talking um, in agriculture in the agricultural practices. Yeah. Well. Um, just one tidbit, and then I'll I'll uh, go to that one. So another thing that I just thought of, and you said something beforehand before we started recording uh, that it, it reminded me of. If you're in a landscape context where you are seeing coveys of quail, then you're pretty. Uh, that's a pretty good indicator that you're doing pretty good on on poult rearing. Sure. So the turkeys and, and quail overlap quite a bit in their requirements uh, from the poult rearing stage to just general quail habitat where you're, uh, you know, you're seeing coveys of quail and sustaining that. They overlap quite a bit at that particular life stage. 
So that's a pretty good indicator for you that that's probably not your limiting factor in your landscape. If you're seeing quail, you're probably doing pretty good on brood rearing. So uh, I thought that might be helpful for folks out there if yeah. you're if you're trying to think about how to overlap those two. That that's where they overlap quite a bit. As for uh, for chemical, uh, there are a couple of things of concern. One that I, I've been getting the question remarkably often about neonicotinoids, mm -hmm. and I, I didn't know that much about it. But I, one one thing that I do, if you you know if your listeners follow me on Instagram or or, or whatever, people ask me questions all the time, and when I get a question over and over like that that I don't know enough about, I go and do a literature review on it and try to get very knowledgeable about it. And this is one of those those topics that I had to do that because I just, you know, that's not my area of expertise. So just recently I did a, a literature review trying to find any information about neonics uh, as it related to wild turkeys. There was a study recently published from Ontario where hunter-harvested turkeys were tested for neonics. And I don't remember the exact proportion, but the bottom line is some of the, the gobblers that were turned in tested positive for neonicotinoids. So that was demonstrating that they can get it you know, from, uh, from agricultural mm -hmm. uh, seeds. So there's, that, that's, that's as far as it goes on turkeys. We don't have any more information than that other than to know that, that at least in that turkey population, some number of the gobblers were exposed. Now, if you go through the other literature on game birds, there are more studies on that. And a couple of the European studies have actually challenged uh, game birds. I think the one that I'm thinking of right now is a gray partridge but it seems like there are a couple of other game birds as well, maybe red grouse that has some information like this. But the the uh, the levels that were detected or, or that became problematic and even lethal in those studies where they were challenging the game birds, uh, those levels were exceeded in at least one of the wild turkeys in that Ontario study. So they're, they're not the same species. I don't know... Uh, you know, if if that's causing declines in, in reproductive success or in uh, survival. But that's enough for me to think that we need to look into that. Mm -hmm. Right. And there have been a couple of studies from South Dakota. Uh, I think one, I can't remember now if it was grouse or uh, pheasants, but there there was a study that... Uh, also raises some concern from South Dakota. So the main the main point there is that we do have some evidence that there's exposure and that there are some reproductive consequences and potentially lethal in some cases uh, of that exposure. So I definitely think it's something that we need to to look into. Okay. As of right now, I have not seen any data presented to suggest that we're seeing declines of of wild turkeys anywhere as a result of of that particular uh, pesticide. Okay. Well, that's good. So, I hope it you know, stays I that way. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. Uh, you know, I, I'm the last one that wants us 
to have population declines over something like that. But, you know, if I'm uh, trying to be completely honest and objective, when I went through that literature review, th those are the things that I found in it. Okay. Uh, we do have one study showing exposure of turkeys, and we do have some other studies on some game bird species that suggest it uh, can have some reproductive consequences. So uh, we need to look into it more. Sure, sure. Well, sweet. Well, I guess uh, you know that's. I, I, I like you said before. I don't want <laughs> don't want to bore the listeners here too much. Let's talk a little bit about your turkey season. We talked a little bit about mm -hmm. before and. Um, uh, and how it's been so far. So you were, you said you were able to get get one gobbler down in uh, Florida. What other plans have you mm -hmm. got for the rest of the spring? Yeah, so <clears throat> I uh, I'm, I actually grew up in Alabama. Uh, in case everybody's wondering where the accent is from, <laughs> that's that's where it came from. Um, yeah, so I, I grew up in Alabama, and I have some some family land there, and also a lot of friends that you know that have some access so i typically go to alabama i also have I, I worked at mississippi state university for four years before coming to the university of florida and developed a network of, of folks there and also have an old high school friend that moved uh, just down the road from the university and i typically go to mississippi to hunt for for a few days and then uh I'm trying to work out going to Georgia as well. Wow. Occasionally, I go to Tennessee and North Carolina, uh, but I, it gets hard to go to all of them in the same year. So yep. uh, I kind of have to pick my pick my battles there. I, I have uh, two young kids at home as well, so you know I have to uh, try to figure out how to balance my job and and family and and uh, love for turkey hunting. Yep. So. I think I'll, I'll probably end up doing the Alabama trip and maybe the North Carolina, and I'll, I may have to forego the other ones this year. Sure. Well, that's cool. You got a lot of different options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, from yeah, and I and I'm completely obsessed with turkey hunting. So that that's my my obsession. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy hunting other things, but it's really passing time to to turkey hunt. Sure. <laughs> So from from being a, a you know a, a wildlife ecologist and, and and studying turkeys, is there anything that you've learned in your studies that you've been able to take away and apply it to hunting? Yeah, I, you know when I saw this, uh, you had this question written out. Uh, I have pondered it for a while, thinking about you know what it, what have I learned. <clears throat> there, there's a, a few things that that I have gleaned from, you know, working with turkeys. One, those things are just as individual as we are. <laughs> you know, they they have their own personalities and and behavior, and there's some degree even during the breeding season that seems to be chaotic, uh, where the same individual starts making you know different choices and. One that that really has made me appreciate the challenge of you know of chasing a, a wild turkey and being successful. Like it, you know, they're each individual is just so unique to one another, and and it makes starts to make a lot of sense why sometimes, man, they just come running in, and you know, other times you you fool with the same turkey. It seems like for weeks, and it just never will do right. 
and uh, and uh, you can see that in the data, and it starts to give you a little more comfort that it's not just you. <laughs> you know, it's like man, I just can't seem to get them. You know, I can't get them patterned. I can't get them to do right. And you know, working with the with the animal and seeing their movements along the landscape and you know all those sorts of things is just reiterated to me that it is there is just a high degree of variation. Also. Uh, we see a lot of turkeys that will roost in the same sites, and they tend to cycle through. So even if you're going to that same bird that's on the same roost every day, day after day after day, uh, it's pretty likely, if you're in a landscape with a lot of times, that it may be different times each morning that are kind of cycling through. So maybe you go in one way this morning, and he goes the opposite way, and then you come into the roost the next morning, and they're roosted again, and it goes the opposite way. Well, it could have been two different turkeys okay. that are literally just going the opposite direction. And you know, I've always perceived those as being the same individual. And the reality is, when you start looking at the data, there's a lot more going on. And you know, it may just be that you have a location that's a really good roost site, and somebody's going to roost there, but who it is might change from day to day. Uh, so there are a lot of interesting things, and, and it's honestly kind of like, uh, you know, uh, your anticipation to go in the ice cream shop or something. Every time I'm about to get data from turkeys that we have tagged, I, I'm just sitting there in anticipation. I can't wait to see, you know, what what these turkeys have been doing. So a lot of fun, uh, you know, exploring these different kinds of data, but also has impacted my perception hunting-wise of what's actually going on when I'm chasing turkeys and repeatedly getting beaten, and then all of a sudden it works well. Well, it could have just been I, I found the right individual, you know, with the right personality. Yeah. <clears throat> so, the right guy in the right uh, mood. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So uh, another thing that I have found pretty interesting over the years and, and it's definitely starting to influence my hunting strategy I, you know when I was growing up my my parents and grandparents uh, and cousins and uncles and every, everybody they were all turkey hunters and all avid hunters just in general but turkeys were you know the what everybody was passionate about and through all of that, I, I learned just an immense amount from that community of people in my, you know, my family, and and uh, we we pretty typically would hunt for the first half of the morning. So we would roost hunt from you know from them coming out the roost, and then a couple hours up into the morning, and then you know we would uh, we would change gears, and for middle of the day through the afternoon, we'd be doing something else. And after working with turkeys for a while and hunting in a bunch of different places, I've started to appreciate, uh, you know, that late morning, midday time frame. And you're you're definitely not going to hear the same level of gobbling, but I typically have a greater success when I strike up a bird at that time. And, okay. you know, I hear people talk about this all the time, but it's something that really didn't resonate with me until... I've started studying their behavior and uh, have various different uh, research projects going on where we're tracking gobbling and, you know, various things. But I, I just started to appreciate, uh, you know, the the uh, 
hunt during that time of the day. So that's one thing, another thing, I guess, that, that I have started doing more frequently now is I'm much more engaged in hunting later into the day. <clears throat> in fact, the, uh, the one that I harvested, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. Cool. This year. That's cool. So, yeah. They, they, at least from, you know, the, the experiences that we've had it. Yeah, definitely. It's fun to hear them up on the roost and to be set up underneath mm-hmm. them and hear them gobbling their heads off and, you know, hit them right away when they hit their, you know, get their feet on the ground. But it is cool also to have them, you know, have an interaction with one throughout the middle of the day. It's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, you know, that would be a good tip for, for folks that, you know, getting up later in the, in the morning on into the afternoon, even if, you know, uh, it's not as exciting. And believe me, I love to be under a turkey on the roost that's gobbling his face off. Mm-hmm. I can't, you know, can't imagine uh, doing anything different. But, you know, hunting up later in the morning or into the afternoon can can uh, reap some benefit. Yep. Sweet. What um, another another thing I wanted to talk about? Is there anything that you've learned about? And, and as a hunter, one of the as a turkey hunter, one of the tough things we deal with is a hung up gobbler. Is there any mm-hmm. science you've come across or anything you've learned throughout your years that that would help you to? to get in, you know, closer into range with that, with that hung up gobbler or what do you, or what do you do? What Mm -hmm. do you, what do you recommend? Yeah. So for me, I would would say in terms of my strategy, I typically am extremely aggressive. Um, that, that's just fits my personality and, uh, the way that I do things. And I I think, you know, it, it definitely costs me some birds sometimes. Sure. But it also gets me really close to some, particularly these problematic turkeys. And, um, you know, I, I think that's one thing that I have have done several times that has helped me close the distance on one. If you get a, a bird that is hung up and maybe they're in a, a place where, you know, they're strut zone and they, if you can get them to leave that, then that's your opportunity to get really close to that. And you can bet uh, pretty often that he's going to come back to that area. So that's something that I, I have learned over the years to, to be more aggressive about. If a turkey moves off of its strutting zone, then, you know, I'm pretty aggressive trying to get close in to that. And it's sort of, you think about it from the biology of the turkey, you know, he's strutting, the hen is supposed to come to him and he hears the hen and, you know, you go, you sit there uh, for an hour and he won't leave that, but finally he moves off of it and then you move to it and then you vocalize again. Well, now the hen has come to him, so it kind of gives him the illusion that the, that she did what she was supposed to. So I, I just, I feel like that's a really good strategy to get on that, that hung up Tom is, you know, when he does move off of that location that he's in, go on to it and then, you know, pretend to be the hen that came to him. Sure. She was just a little bit late. Uh, another thing that I have tried a couple of times and it was after I wrote, read, uh, Gene Nunnery's book, the old pro, he, uh, describes a, a situation where he had this, this famous 
Tom that was hung up. Uh, I can't recall what he named it now, but uh, I think it was Galberry, Galberry Joe or something like that. Uh, but he he talks about uh, trying all these different strategies, and one of them that he tried was basically, you know, when you're fooling with that Tom that's hung up like that, is to start gradually moving away from it. Oh, okay. And uh, particularly if you have a pair of people, you know, one person moving away that's doing the calling kind of gives the, the Tom the illusion that she's lost interest and she's going to go the other way. And sometimes that makes him upset and he comes on in. And uh, I've, I've actually used that strategy when we had two people uh, successfully before. Okay. Where, I, you know, I moved away and it brought the Tom right into the gun. And uh, another one that his his other thing that he talks about in that book was pretty similar to the strategy I, I just discussed, where he actually he kept he had this time that kept doing going back and forth, and then uh, when it it got farther away from him, he basically took off running, uh, trying to to close the distance to get to a particular location. So really interesting read if you if you. Uh, if you like turkey hunting, that's a great book, and it has it uh, on Audible. And I, I do a lot of traveling, so I listen to it on Audible. It's really great. Cool. I'll definitely have to check <clears> that out. I'm about halfway through the the Tenth Legion right now, so I'm not a big, I'm not very much oh, yeah. of a reader, and never really have been. So it kind of takes mm-hmm. me a while to get through a book, but yeah, it's a good read as well. Cool. Yeah, very good one. Another one's uh, Illumination in the Flatwoods. Uh, that was. A book. It was actually from the Tallahassee area in Florida, uh, but uh, he imprints turkey poults oh, cool. uh, from the egg, you know, and, and then lives with them, and then uh, wrote the book talking about his experience, uh, you know, living as a turkey. Cool. A really cool book. I guess I need to go on a vacation and do a bunch of reading. It gives me an excuse to book a <laughs> book a beach trip. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Cool. After turkey season, of there course. There you go. Yep. There you go. Maybe I'll just come down to Florida and shoot one and then spend some time on the beach. That sounds like a nice plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people uh, plan that every year. Yeah. Where I want, I'm interested also to hear where, where you stand on reaping a technique called reaping or fanning. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested to see where you stand on that and if there's any science behind it. Yeah. There, so this is obviously one of those contentious topics and uh, a lot of people get really upset by it and I can understand why and then there are plenty of people who who uh, like that technique and and are advocates Um, for me I'm really about hunter opportunity and satisfaction and enjoying the resource and and I kind of stand as as it is right now with you know, if that's uh, something that you personally enjoy, then, you know, if it's legal, that's your business. Uh, that, you know, that, I know that there have been regulation changes in some places, yep. and some of those are stemming from the uh, the safety aspect of it. Yep. And I, I know of multiple instances now where, where a hunter... Uh, you know, was injured from from holding a fan, and you know, I, I think there's real concern about that, and particularly in public land scenarios. 
Uh, but I heard of one just recently where it was actually on private land. Oh, really? So, you know, that, that's a real concern. Yep. And it makes a lot of sense. So I often think about it from a biological sense. You know, uh, there are several uh, arguments to be made about how it affects uh, turkey populations through affecting relative fitness of males and that sort of thing. To me, I, you know, when we're thinking about it from that biological standpoint, it's hard for me to distinguish between someone carrying a fan and, you know, using that reaping technique from a strutting decoy. They're designed to basically do the same thing mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, they're provoking a male into to coming in, you know, uh, to defend its... its uh, it's it's uh, made access, so you know there are some concerns about that uh, in terms of which males are vulnerable. There has not been, to my knowledge, any science to quantify this with wild turkeys. But the argument essentially is that we have this this mating system that's elaborate. We know from a various other species that that is a strong female selection for a higher fitness male. So basically, you know, the the male display is uh, really important in signaling to females who is best. So where this would potentially uh, come into play here is if the males that are typically strutting, that have a harem of females, if we all of a sudden make those the most vulnerable and formerly they were not vulnerable. You know, that, that Tom that's out in the field with a bunch of hens that it was really hard to, to get on. Well, if you take a technique that now makes him the most vulnerable, cause he's the boss that's going to come and, you know, try to uh, defend his, his uh, mating opportunity. Like that's where that could biologically come into play and, and be a problem. Okay. But as far as I know, there has been no evidence one way or another presented on that. And that may just be because it hasn't been studied. Uh, but, you know, I haven't seen any any evidence. But knowing about mating displays, that would be the hypothesis that we would test in that scenario is that we could affect the, the relative genetic performance of, of individuals and populations by, by changing who is vulnerable. Okay. Man, that would be a really interesting study. Yeah, and it, it it would be really interesting. It's also extremely difficult to quantify, but uh, you know that's that would be the biological mechanism that I suspect uh, we would see consequences of if there are any. Okay. But I, I think the the real discussion is you know balancing the the hunting risk for the hunter with you know, opportunity for hunters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people want to be able to hunt the way they they choose, but we also need everybody to be safe. Yep. So we're trying to balance that. And, and I think it's a, a difficult uh, place to try to, you know, to try to balance that. I mean, obviously we should, we should uh, protect human life at all costs. And, you know, if that means that, that we need to limit some of our tools, then, you know, uh, this might, that might be what we see happen. Yep. I think, uh, 
I th- yeah, I think you were talking a little bit, I think, was it Tennessee that outlawed uh, fanning or reaping on public land just recently? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And it makes sense. I mean, if you're looking like so- looking like something that you're hunting, you know, it. there's a little mm-hmm. bit of d- risk and danger in that. And, um, you know, yeah. what's, that, what's, that... A, what's a cost, you know, what's the cost, you, you know? Right. You get a bird or you lose your life or you get, you know, blasted with a bunch right. of number nine tungsten. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I'll tell right. you, I'd rather not have that happen to me. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Or, or to anybody for that matter. Uh, yeah. The, the one in Tennessee, uh, I don't know if it was solely because of an incident, but I am aware of one uh, incident that happened just before that regulatory change. Okay. Where... A, a person that was uh, was raping actually got shot by the person he was with. Oh boy! And uh, he, he survived it, but uh, yeah, it was a miscommunication or or something, and and uh, the the gun shot the wrong the wrong fan. Yep. Hmm. So well, that's uh, too bad. Yeah, but luckily he he survived it and, and was recovering, but. Yeah, and I and I've heard a couple of other incidents that were much worse. You know, people yeah. lost their life. Yep, yep. Well, on a on a brighter note, this is a a question I like to ask all my guests. Can you tell me about a time when you were outdoors when time was standing still? Yeah, there there've been quite a few of these. Actually, quite a few of them are with they're in the turkey woods. Uh, one I I always think back to is. I was a really young kid, and I can remember sitting with my dad uh, hunting turkeys, and a turkey was coming in, and I remember it displaying and and gobbling and everything, and that was one of those events in my life that kind of set in motion the entire rest of my life. I was like, at at that moment, you know, all of the, the hunting experiences and everything, and then that that experience with that gobbler, you know, just led me to be passionate about uh, conserving wildlife resources and led me down the path to to where I am today, basically. And uh, that's one of those experiences that, you know, I always think back to as just a, you know, that, that moment in time in nature that completely reshaped my life and my view of, of nature. Mm-hmm. That's cool. A definite, uh, a definite spark in your, in your life. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. question. It doesn't, it, I, you know, going back to my early years too, it really doesn't take much, you know, to, you know, I'm sure you've seen a, a thousand started, started birds and, you know, but it it really doesn't take much. Just your first opportunity with a bird like that, or you know, a big buck, mm-hmm. or your first, you know, whatever, big giant walleye, whatever it is. It, it really doesn't take much for a kid to really, you know, get into get mm-hmm. that get that feeling, which I think is neat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, another instance, I actually uh, talked about it with the uh, guys from Mossy Oak because it was the same day I, I was o- over with them. Uh, I had been turkey hunting that morning and. I, I was sitting there. I was kind of as late up in the morning. Uh, the last several turkeys, actually, that I've killed have been up later in the morning. 
but this one, it, I, I didn't get up because it was raining at daylight. And then I went out after the rain, you know, maybe 9 a.m. And uh, no, wasn't hearing any gobbling and was just sitting there. And a hooded warbler flew up and landed on a branch about two inches in front of my face. Oh, cool. And it, it was a male. And he just started basically, you know, uh, singing. But it was like he was screaming right into my face. And I was just watching this this hooded warbler, and it gave me the idea in the moment that I should gobble. And I just had that idea from this male warbler that's singing his heart out, you know, trying to find a mate. And I just thought, I'm going to try to gobble. I haven't done that in so long, I can't even remember the last time. And I had a box that worked well in the rain for gobbling in particular. And I, I just gobbled, and it just turned on the woods. Cool. You know, I had several birds respond to me, and then I ended up uh, getting on one and killing it that morning. And it was all all stemmed from this moment where the sudden warbler lands just an inch and, you know, a couple inches in front of my face. And I just, you know, male calling. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to gobble. <laughs> that's and that's awesome. the only one that I've actually, uh, I've killed a, a tom in direct response to me gobbling like that cool that little guy he was out to help you i guess <laughs> yeah well it was just one of those things it was like he was sending me a message yeah so i just you know that 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 uh idea just popped in my head from that <laughs> that's cool that's cool well sweet marcus this uh this is my last section here it's my this or that section um it's a series of 10 okay. questions two different options I'll spout them off, and you just uh, tell me which one out of the two you like better at the time. Sound good? And then we can uh, wind it up from there. Okay. All right. I'm assuming I'm not supposed to think about it, just reaction. Exactly. Your reaction, just like a shock gobble. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) All right. So question one. If you're a turkey, are you going to eat a grasshopper or an acorn? Grasshopper. All right. Now, if you're out hunting, are you using an owl call or a crow do you prefer to use an owl call or a crow call to locate a gobbler owl what about a diaphragm or slate call slate and sitting in a blind or out in the open open what about merriams or rios miriam all right jake decoy or full strut gobbler decoy jake and what poses a bigger threat to a turkey, a coyote or a great horned owl? Great horned owl. And if you got a hunting snack, which do you prefer? An oatmeal cream pie or beef jerky? <laughs> the cream pie. <laughs> Little pro tip here. An oatmeal cream pie fits perfectly in your slate decoy uh, holder on your vest. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And yep. what about a shotgun or a bow? Um, I would prefer a bow, All right. but I'm much more, much better with a shotgun. <laughs> All right. And what gets the hair on the back of your neck standing up better, an elk bugle or a turkey gobble? Ooh, that one, I, I've experienced it much more with a turkey, but, uh, an elk bugling in your face, it's something to behold as well. That, is, that there, there's something to it, man. It, yeah, it definitely raises the hair on the back of your neck and gives you Almost mm-hmm. goosebumps every time you think about it after that. Yeah. 
Well, cool, man. Thanks. Uh, thanks again so much for joining me on here. It's perfect time. Um, once again, good luck on the rest of your season on your, 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 uh, road trips for your turkeys. And, um, I guess let me know how it goes. If anybody wants to learn more about turkeys, um, you mentioned your Instagram a little bit, but, um, where else can they, Mm -hmm. can they find you? Yeah, so at, um, uh, at the handle at Dr. Disturb, I'm probably most responsive on Instagram, but uh, across platforms, uh, you can find me there, or you can uh, email me. Feel free to do that at marcus.lashley at ufl.edu. And of course, uh, talk turkeys all the time on the Wild Turkey Science Podcast. Awesome. We have really enjoyed listening to that podcast, too. It's uh, quite informative, a lot better than uh, than most that I've heard. So, yeah, we appreciate, uh, as, yeah, appreciate as an audience, we really appreciate having that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. All right, Marcus, thanks, and again, good luck. Yep, same to you.